You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. It's Katie, Buildup's Manager of Global Operations. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, Nick is talking with Yvonne Moore, the Managing Director of More Philanthropy and President of More Impact. Yvonne has over 25 years of experience in the government, civil society, and philanthropic sectors to their work in providing strategic and tailored philanthropic advisement and solutions to families, individuals, and institutions. Prior to launching More Philanthropy, Yvonne was the chief of staff to filmmaker and philanthropist Abigail E. Disney, where she oversaw the family's network of media, philanthropic, and advocacy organizations. She ran the family's private foundation, provided advisement on their personal philanthropic giving, both charitable and political, and led their expansion into international giving in 2008. With the launch of More Philanthropy, Yvonne and her team work with clients to help advance their philanthropy in a way that makes sense for them and the communities they seek to serve, whether they choose to use traditional grant-making or more complex social investment vehicles. With a particular expertise in cross-border giving and in managing family dynamics, the firm provides a range of client services from formulating giving strategies, conversations with next-generation family members, navigating and resolving challenges around family dynamics, as well as grants administration for funds, trusts, and foundations. And with that, here is Yvonne Moore. To get us started, can you tell us about the work that you do your role and your focus within the sector and what your immediate priorities are given our current environment. Yeah, sure. Thank you again. So I am founder and managing director of More Philanthropy, which is a private advisory firm. I'll talk a little bit about that. And then also I am the president and head of More Impact, which is an exempt entity. So we created um, More Philanthropy seven years ago. And we're seeking to work with clients around their philanthropy, clients of wealth and means around their philanthropy. We've always prioritized sharing the stories of Black philanthropy. I think that's actually the way a lot of us grew up, but you would never actually know that from the narrative that's actually out there. So created more philanthropy to actually work with donors, but we actually try to bring donors to a place where they understand that the most challenging problems are often solved by the wisdom and knowledge of folks who are actually navigating those problems on a daily basis. So creating real partnership with folks in community, real partnership with organizations and leaders in community. And we try to be very clear with that with our clients, because the goal is to actually move the needle. It's actually not to just simply work with clients, but it's actually to help move the needle on some things, help to you know, de-risk or the the perception of risk, you know, kind of minimize the perception of risk and understand that risk so that folks will actually want to do, you know, things a little bit more aggressively or whatever the right word is. You can kind of fill in the blank. But to actually be truly innovative. We love our buzzwords in philanthropy. So I, I don't like using a whole lot of buzzwords unless I'm going to actually define it for you. But just be honest and authentic about changing, about change, about, you know, changing problems. The more impact our exempt arm came about in 
2020, you know, from just a frustration with philanthropy, continually to say one thing and actually not fulfilling their stated missions, their stated vision and goals. I had always thought about opening, you know, creating or launching a, a nonprofit entity, but it was really just about serving clients. On the more philanthropy side, it really wasn't about how do we actually begin to partner with folks in an authentic way? How do we actually get donors to understand their our options and ideas? And But, you know, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was some work that I was doing with a private foundation, working with girls of color. And, you know, I had this conversation with the team and I said, you know, I would be a very poor consultant if I didn't tell you that you really need to partner with someone that shares the values and that actually looks like these young women. They have told you what their values are. They have told you what's important to them. They have told you how they want to live and navigate this world. And for the entire time that I've been consulting with you all, that's what you all have been holding up as your North Star. And so let me work to connect you with fiscal sponsorship partner that actually shares those values. They chose to go a different way. And I guess I just realized that we have to build it ourselves as Black women, as Black folks, as people of color, because as much as the sector professes one thing, they sometimes do another. Now, as much as philanthropy frustrates me, I stay in philanthropy because I sincerely believe that it has the ability to do so much good. For those of us who live by love of humanity as the definition of philanthropy, it's how it's carried out. I believe we have the ability to do so much good, but at the same time, I can only be who I am, so I live authentically. And I tend to actually, you know, ask the questions, at least I'm hoping I'm asking the questions that need to be asked. So that's kind of who we are. More impact focuses on fiscal sponsorship for organizations that are doing, you know, working community and also for donor collaboratives who actually, again, want to live their values of equity and justice, you know, power shift, just actually talking about power, goodness gracious. And also being a sponsoring organization for donor advised funds. Again, and we've learned so much in the last two years about how the investment community actually operates and what does it mean to invest in a way, you know, any assets that actually does not undermine the work that you're actually trying to do. That, you know, a lot of banks and investment houses don't actually take the work seriously or have not been pushed by their client base to do that. So that's the other thing is we hold donor advice funds for individuals and families and companies, those folks that want to set it up. And so, yeah, there's a lot of advocacy work going on about that, too. I'm happy to talk about it. But, yeah, that's a little bit about more impact and more philanthropy. Thank you so much for that, Yvonne. I have so many questions from what you shared. So the first is you mentioned Black philanthropy. And I see that as a topic that has come up more and more recently, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about Black philanthropy. What is it now as we think about that term, Black philanthropy? What does it look like in 2022 and beyond? You also mentioned a narrative. How does Black philanthropy show up today against that narrative that you referenced? You know, against the narrative that I've referenced, I think that's the beautiful thing. I mean, one of the the reasons that 
you know, from the very beginning when we were just starting out and had no money, <laughs> if you will, or anything that I was, you know, only my money that I was bringing to the game, I reached out to the folks at Black Philanthropy Month, Valeda Fullwood and Tracy and Jacqueline, who were actually doing that work. And I was like, okay, this is so exciting. Can you come and, you know, during Black Philanthropy Month in August, and would you, you know, talk, we can have a conversation. I mean, we just started crafting stuff. So another buddy of mine, two other buddies of mine, we're like, well, we'll just do it. We'll just craft a conversation. And later responded so quick. Actually, later and Tracy both responded so quick. I was like, okay, let me email you back because we don't have any money to like fly you out. And she kind of laughed. She was like, no, that's okay. She's like, we actually get funded to do that. The reason that we did that and, and kind of really jumped on that opportunity is I think all of us. And, and actually, when I think about the diaspora, and just to be clear, when we talk about Black philanthropy, we talk about the African diaspora in, in its entirety around the world, which is so exciting because Black Philanthropy Month has really, you know, opened that up in the last couple of years to just remind folks. But I mean, Black philanthropy really starts at home. I learned philanthropy from my father and my mother. I watched my grandparents. And so to come into institutional philanthropy and for folks to say, oh, you know, you don't actually really get what we're trying to do or oh, you know, you don't understand philanthropy. Or, you know, there's a the logic model. And I was like, yeah, I know the logic model. I learned that in grad school. But the logic model doesn't apply to everything. So to come into institutional philanthropy and then be told that I don't get it, as a friend of mine says, she said, well, that's what mama used to do, right? So like, we do get it. And so to actually put forth and for us to begin to shape that narrative versus other people shaping it. And other people, I think, have shaped it as the folks that receive, and when I talk about Black philanthropy, I'm not just talking about talent. You know, people always want to say that we do time and talent. Black folks give money. And so that's the thing we give. And now I love the way that this is all expanded to, you know, time, talent, treasure, testimony. I can't remember the 50. That's so bad. But that was the narrative that has been painted is that we receive. And I feel as though... I mean, internally, we've always had the narrative that we are givers beyond, you know, Mrs. McCarthy, Osceola McCarthy, who was just a phenomenal woman who did not make a lot of money, but it didn't matter to her. But it ended up mattering so much more to children that she gave an education to in her community. So the narrative is that we are receivers. And I'm like, that's not actually true. So how does more philanthropy as an institution begin to be a part of telling that story and pushing the real narrative forward? I really like that. And I think that you're exactly right. When we think about philanthropy today, when we think about the positioning of Black philanthropy and what that narrative is about Black philanthropy. That first, it, it doesn't exist. Um, and when it does, it's this sort of unicorn that is sort of emerging over the past few years. So I really like your, your framing of it. And when I think about philanthropy, what you're sharing is really resonating with me because I think we're just at a point in 2022 where philanthropy, the models that worked or that were created years ago and that we were really focused on even a decade ago, they just are missing the mark in many ways in 2022. And I imagine that will continue to happen. And so as you're thinking about new ways of engaging in philanthropy and the different ways to be in community, to use your, your phrasing, what does authentic partnership look like, right? When we think about 
again, we're stepping into philanthropy, looking at this old model, realizing that it's not working, and we think about how to build in community. What does authentic partnership look like? What does it feel like, particularly as we think about funders and grantees? It's so funny. So first of all, authentic partnerships like looks like your grantees interviewing you, grantee partners interviewing you. It's like, that's beautiful that you want to give some money, but actually I don't know you. Talk to me about your values. And I have more and more people that we speak with about funding are asking us this question. And it's actually exciting because they're no longer, they're beginning to get less and less afraid of making a donor anxious or upset or angry or fill in the blank. And that is crazy. I love it. It's understanding that you can't hack trust. People love to hack everything. And, you know, shortcuts have their place, but there's some things you just can't. And I think because every person has their own journey, but trust is something that's very important to me. It was always key to relationships and remains key. So people need to understand that you actually care. It's not performative. You're actually trying to support them. You're actually trying to do stuff. You may make mistakes. It may not come out the way you planned in the beginning, but trust is the other thing. I love how we now call some of these things trust-based philanthropy when, yeah, it's like, that's such a great idea. So now you want to name it, but you're still struggling to actually <laughs> do it. Yeah. yeah. This is the same, the same thing I said in the beginning. It's like, if I use a phrase, I'm going to actually define it, What you know, try to tell you what I mean by it. But yeah, I, that actually, it makes me cringe to no end. I think it's understanding and actually... One of the things that my team realized very recently is that I've been in philanthropy for the last 22 years and a lot of my team, the same. And this last docket that we did in partnership with Pivotal Ventures was all about, we chose to approach it from a trust-based, authentic way. I mean, I'm using that term because that's what people love to use, but it actually was complicated. It was a little bit challenging. I won't say complicated because that's the other thing too. We love to make things hard. Hard is, you know, walking to school with the risk of being assaulted. Like that's hard. What we do can be challenging. But one of the things we have to remember is to trust ourselves because that whole story I just told you about growing up being a philanthropist, growing up watching philanthropy, I still have to stop and trust myself that I actually have over 30 years of experience working in community and now working in philanthropy. And it was actually breaking down white dominant culture and their idea of what due diligence looks like. Because as much as philanthropy loves to think of itself as rigorous, we are not actually always rigorous. Now, there are some folks who are doing, if you talk to an academic and you think about an institutional review board on IRB process, they would laugh at us calling some of the things we do rigorous. So to actually, you know, unpack and peel apart what we think of as best practices and to actually find out how much of that do you actually really need? You get reports, are you reading the reports? How much do you take from the reports and then put them into practice? Are you listening to what your grantee partners are telling you that they need? Are you actually basing your strategy on what's actually going to work? Versus creating a strategy, taking it to community, and then it doesn't work. And then you try to figure out how to course correct, or even worse, you actually might say, tell the grantee partner that something they did actually wasn't correct. So to kind of get back, it's, you know, authentic 
partnership. It's trust that's actually breaking apart what best practices looks like and is actually what you need in order to make change. It's trusting yourself. It's most definitely trusting your partner. It's asking the question, what can we do better? And you actually want to hear the answer. (laughs) And you actually don't punish. You know, if you're not ready for the answer, don't ask the question, right? So it's being ready for all of those things. And it is a change. It's a shift. And you know, I was talking to my program officer and I said, what did they say during the site visit? She said, Vaughn, remember, we didn't do site visit. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's right. We didn't do site <laughs> visits, right? We didn't do applications. We have a list of due diligence things that we sent to general counsel <laughs> to make sure that <laughs> it was <laughs> what was appropriate. It was the legal Right. It was we bound by U.S. law always, but it was legally what. But it's like and then realizing that why are we doing A, B, C and D? And is that actually going to make the work better? Is it going to actually make the outcomes better? Now, we'll go back. Now, we, we went through the process of, you know, talking to folks or looking, you know, doing the due diligence on our side. Anyway, long story short, it's authentic partnership is actually trying to be a partner. It's like the bulk of the work is not on the other person. The power shift you know, you don't exert power over that person because you have the resources. You actually use your power to actually do some of the due diligence because you can get it. The information we need, we can easily get. And so it's a power shift or a power play to actually make them get all the information you technically already have. Hmm. That's a little bit about how I kind of try to define that was a lot. Authentic partnership, but... (laughs) No, I like that that because it... No, it builds on what you were saying about we want to be able to build it ourselves. And part of being able to build it ourselves is listening, understanding where we are, and then understanding, again, yes, we have the legal compliance pieces, but then we think a lot, and we say this phrase a lot, best practices, but who is determined that they are best, right? And so we just kind of take it along over the years and say, yes, we're, we're doing all these things. And you need to separate out like, okay, what are you legally required to do? And we can get into like that legal framework and how, uh, whether or not we can change it. But then the other things where folks are thinking, yeah, like you said, we're being so rigorous, but it's like, well, it seems like you're being selectively rigorous because exactly. sometimes these things don't exist for, and you mentioned this at the very top of our conversation for what they are deeming to be risky. Right? Exactly. And that's the thing too, what I tell clients, I was like, look, I'm not even like, There is no such thing. There's nothing in life that doesn't involve some risk. So why would you think you trying to change a system that was set up for many people to fail? How would you think that that's not risky? Life is risky. So what we're talking about is not eliminating risk. We're talking about mitigating risk. So Mm -hmm. it's like, really, are you kidding me right now? No. I mean, the most challenging things on earth, you want to say, well, what's the risk like? It's going to be risky as hell. (laughs) <laughs> a lot to you. However, like you want to change the way that domestic workers are acknowledged, accepted, and heard in an income society which was never created for them, way back to the New Deal. And you want to know it's going to be, it's not, it's not going to be, no, it's going to be risky as hell. Right. So the question is, is the organization that we're partnering with prepared to actually do that work? And are you willing to invest in them to actually do the work mm-hmm. well? Mm-hmm. That, 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 so I'm like, did you just ask me, was it going to be risky? Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, agreed. Risky. Agreed. <laughs> the next question is, okay, it's yes. And it's like, I see a lot of, and we talked about the application process, right? Like there are a lot of those questions now sitting in applications, like, you know, what's the risk? 
associated with this proposal or with this work and you're listing out all these risks and it's like, okay, great. We got them. Like, that's really it. Like we've just listed it and we've moved on. But like, to your point, it's like, okay, the next question is now that we have these risks, how do we manage them, mitigate them? Are they actually risk? How do we make sure that you are supported while you're doing this work and we're investing in you and your organization? And it's that second exactly. piece that I want to understand, like, how do we do that better? And you talked about yeah. your application process, not having an application and getting a lot of the information yourselves. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that has come about. And this is for folks who are listening, who are thinking, how could you possibly do that? How could you move forward with this kind of process and you're awarding grant awards or grant funding without having an application? Is it just for certain amounts <laughs> of funding? You know, I, I just love to hear a little bit more. Yeah, so this was actually the brainchild of one of my former program director. And she, bless her heart, and and this is the thing about this work in general, for folks of color, for folks who have been oppressed by the systems that we're talking about replicating in our own communities, we stay exhausted. And so she came to me one day and she was like, you know, Vaughn, she's like, I'm tired. Like she was working on the justification and the process and the strategy for this particular stream of grant making. And she said, you know what? Why are we making them do this? She said, with respect, and actually appreciate her actually doing this. Not even, we don't even need to say with respect because we actually appreciated Mackenzie Scott actually creating this model, if you will, of just, if she can give away $8.6 billion, surely we can give away a couple of million without driving grantee partners crazy. And that's what she said. She's like, Vaughn, she's like, I mean, people have comments and thoughts and ideas about the way she's giving. But the truth is, the burden, at least from her writing and what we understand from other writings, is that the bulk of the work is done by the team with whom she's working. Then you reach out and you let them know they've gotten the grant. I was actually talking to one ED that was a recipient of one of her grants and really would love to hear back from her at the year mark and find out how that relationship, hopefully, it's going to be a relationship, is progressing. But at the moment, there is a level of trust that she is giving to these organizations by deploying this money without a whole lot of due diligence in the beginning, again, based on what we've read about her process. So we were like, why can't we do that? Why are we going to drive? And we're giving far less money, which means our process should be far less complicated. I can actually see where they drove people crazy in the end because they're giving away tens of millions of dollars to one organization. If we're giving away small pots of money, 80, 90, $100,000, why would we drive people crazy ourselves? And so really took McKinsey Scott's model, along with trust-based philanthropy, along with just our own personal values around what it means to work with community, not work at community, if you will, to actually partner with them and figure out how it is that they do their work best. That's how we came to that conclusion. And one of the other things, like we're moving forward now, we, we just deployed those grants. It was funny because, you know, there's one particular group doing, you know, really complicated, some folks would call abolitionist work. And they were like, love that you want to give us money, but can we talk to you? Because not everybody is really down for the work that we're doing. So we want to find out how authentic you are coming into this space. So that was really great. So now we'll go to the next step because we are, you know, we are responsible to the donor who is leading this particular fund of what does evaluation and measurement look like? How do we talk about impact? And so the next thing we're doing is actually talking to each partner about, talk to us about how you measure impact. 
right? How do you know you're successful? Because for me to tell them what I think success is for their particular, first of all, it's a, a large swath of organizations doing all kinds of amazing work. How are we going to come up with an evaluation system that meets every single one of their needs or that to which they can even respond? So now we're actually going back to them and, you know, give us your indicators. How do you know you're successful? How do you know it's going to work? What are some risks that you're going to have to deal with? How would you course correct? Right. Asking them those questions now. So when we, you know, we'll do a a video call because we want to meet them because some of them we don't know. Some of them we've never met. We know of their work. They come from trusted colleagues. They come from us. They come from learned about an organization who is doing amazing work. Some people had personal interaction with organizations. They were like, Vaughn, we need to really check them out and find out more about what they're doing. So kind of, I think I may have gotten off on a whole tangent, but kind of following that thread from how do you do that work? What does it actually look like? Being nervous about how this is going to be received. I mean, that's just the reality being nervous about how this is going to be received by our donor, continuing to live authentically as we get to the evaluation piece, looking at impact. And this is a two-year grant and actually maintaining and continuing that relationship. So that was kind of the impetus for actually doing this work. And the other thing too is actually bringing our board on board, if you will. So bringing our trustee board on board to say, this is what we're doing. It is a risk. Not people like to do it. Not a lot of folks like to do it. And actually educating them, too, about what, you know, all these different phrases we love, trust-based philanthropy and the work of Mackenzie Scott, the work of, you know, movement leaders and movement builders and what it actually looks like. So I like that. And I like that you're basically listening and then doing exactly what you just shared, which is thinking about the framework and system in which we operate and saying, what doesn't feel right, what doesn't resonate, and actually taking action on that. And I liked how you're talking about evaluating impact, because that was my next question for you. Like, mm-hmm. How do you then go about evaluating impact? Like, is there reporting? Because again, you know, that's another part of the process where you have a lot of papers and they're not always being read, right? <laughs> they're not always being read, but they're being produced. And so exactly. <laughs> and how how do you then What does that part of the process look like? Are you doing anything differently there? So, you know, we've actually been talking about reporting. That's the other thing, too, is kind of how do you balance reporting with actually sincerely wanting to get to know folks, right, is to have conversations. One of the things that I've learned over the last 22 years is that when you're in relationship with folks, they feel like they can actually come to you with something when it's wrong, when something goes wrong. And that was the thing that I, you know, my work at the Daphne Foundation I learned so much from both Abby and Pierre, the donors to the foundation, and from my community partners. When you build real relationship, you actually, folks come and tell you, Vaughn, you know, we got a problem. I need to come over and talk to you. We've had grantees have an issue or be be concerned about a problem and actually ask for supplemental funding and say, oh, you know what, Vaughn, everything works out and give you the money back. This is what you get when you have in your relationship. I've had grantees come and tell me, Vaughn, we're having a cash flow issue. Is it possible for us to get an early disbursement on our, you know, our second year of funding? We always did multi-year funding. Like these are the things you learn. I used to tell my grantees, don't let me find out about something from anybody other than you. (laughs) 
That's what my mother used to tell me. She was like, if you do something, you better tell me first. It better not come from Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. And so that's what I told him. I was like, I need you to, you know, please trust me. And if there's a, if there comes a time where you can't tell me that too. And so relationships. So as we get to this first piece, we really just want to do a video call so we can meet and talk to folks. Some folks we don't know as well as we know others. We again are trusting them to keep doing what they have publicly demonstrated that they're doing already. And so then we'll talking about the one year report, had giving that we're talking about whether or not we'll give them a choice of a video report, a written report, or if they want to do audio again or Zoom again or video. So we'll figure that out. And then the second year report, whether or not we'll even do a six month report in the second year. We may not need that. Just let them work. Just let them right. do what you've actually given them money to do and actually giving them a few questions for each of those moments so that they're not wondering what in the world they're going to ask us. And then everybody is kind of scrambling to figure out what is it that they really, we will tell you what we actually need and want to know, and then allow you to ask questions of us. Mm -hmm. So that's the way we're talking about exactly how to flow. And that's one of the things we do want to ask when we meet with them the first time at the six month mark is, yeah, how would you like this to flow? I really like how you're thinking about reporting and basically saying we want to make sure that this is not administratively burdensome on you and that you're exactly. just telling us about the work that you're doing and it and it flows. I see that working really well with organizations that you have a relationship with. Maybe you've given them a grant or two before, or they're maybe they're they're known by other partners in the field. Are you taking this approach with first-time grantees as well? We are. And if so, okay, is anything different between a grantee that you've been working with for years and an organization that is first time grantee? Let's see. So, to be honest, everyone, there are a couple of partners that were also new to me that I made grants via a client. And so I know they're known to me. But to be honest, I'm, I'm like, want to make sure I'm not telling a lie. <laughs> There are a few folks that we do not know at all. We learned about them through, again, like an, a, another team member may have said, why don't we really check out their work? It may have been someone that we learned about through the press. One organization, I kid you not, that I found, I literally, we were funding in Nevada with another client. And I was very honest about the fact that I don't know anything about Nevada, but I was very excited to find out it's because the primary communities that we're funding through this particular initiative are Black and Native. We really wanted to fund Black and Native communities in the inner West, the middle of the country, because we were worried about all these folks that had gotten left out of the middle of the country and also the South. So we stayed away. And, you know, it's hard to do that because you, you know, you know good people where you are. But, yeah, we just know like the Dakotas and all these folks that are doing amazing work and in the South. So. I literally found one organization from Googling social activists, I forgot, like activist movement builders, something, something in Nevada, and literally found them through a press. They had, they had, someone had written about them and some of the work that they were doing. And so I, then I dug in more from there. We partnered with folks like Just Fund, who, you know, keep track of organizations. If nobody knows Just Fund, I'm going to totally mess it up. They actually... Uh, what's the word? They bring together all these applications from amazing organizations and they try to create, eliminate barriers to actually funding. And, you know, funders actually trust Just Fund to actually kind of catalog all these applications so people don't have to apply for the 
to write a million different proposals. Here's a proposal that they wrote. It talks about their work in a very detailed way. Why do you need them to write another one? And so finding about organizations through Just Fun, but this one in particular, I literally searched them through movement builders and activists in Nevada and, and learned about, you know, quite actually a few good organizations. So there are some people that we actually do not know. We looked at, you know, GuideStar. We did check with other colleagues, their website, reviews, other donors, like on their website, who else is funding them. So there are a few people that we don't know. So to be honest, it's not scary. I was going to say it's a little nerve wracking, but it's actually not. And that concludes part one of the series. Next week, Yvonne and Nick discuss how funders can approach funding organizations they do not know and reframing risk. You won't want to miss it. Also, we wanted to share a little more about BuildUp Inc., a fiscal sponsor and member of the BuildUp Companies. BuildUp Inc. provides sponsorship of projects and concepts. We encourage innovation and creativity, require ideas that attempt to positively change or impact the world, and bring unparalleled legal, strategic, and operational expertise and support to fiscal sponsorship and capacity building structures. We bring concepts and ideas to life and operationalize social and economic change. If you would like to explore how BuildUp Inc. can address your or your project's specific needs, we will add the link to schedule a discovery call in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit BuildUp. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.